Last week, I told you about a paranormal encounter I had in Mexico. I also told you that my family that used to live in that area, that same mining colony, had had a lot of encounters of their own. I'm going to share those with you today. Now, if you remember, employees of that mining company got moved around from house to house in the colony according to their position within the company. There's one house in particular that seemed to have more stories than the rest, and this was the first house they ever lived in down there, which was also the smallest of the houses they had. So here's the first thing that happened. My uncle had been working pretty late, and my aunt was in bed when she heard him come home. Now, she figured he'd think she was asleep, so she decided she'd give him a little scare when he came in. So she closed her eyes and pretended to be asleep. She heard that front door shut, He walked through the little living room, down the hallway. She heard the bedroom door open and close. The footsteps came to the bed. She felt his weight on the mattress as he sat down on the bed, and she knew that this would be the best time to scare him. She turned around quickly, threw her arms up over her head. Ah! But there was no one there. She was alone in the house. He didn't come home till later. My aunt talked to her friends about it. Other women that lived in the neighborhood, some longer than her. One of them had been there since childhood. She told her about a time that she'd been walking up the hill through a patch of woods for an event. A lot of them took that shortcut. So she'd been following a woman in a white dress. Something seemed off about her and she couldn't quite put her finger on it. Finally, she arrived at the event. She asked about the woman who had come in right before her because she hadn't recognized her and everybody in this neighborhood knew everybody else. They told her that nobody had come in right before her. And that's when she realized that what had been wrong with the woman in front of her is that there had been no legs coming out from the bottom of that dress. It had simply been floating above the ground. Now fast forward a few years. They've been moved to a different house. My little cousin at this point is about four or five years old and she comments on how much she likes the little old couple that lives across the street. They're always working in their yard. However, the house across the street is not currently occupied. Nobody lives there. Nobody's in that yard, but she sees them all the time. That house across the street is the same house where my aunt and uncle used to live when that first incident happened. Now, fast forward a few more years when that same cousin is a teenager. The family is now living further down the street. Because this colony is so small, everybody walks everywhere. So she's walking home. In order to get home, she has to walk past that same little house. As she starts to get closer to it, she can hear keys rattling in the lock, like someone's trying to open the door. She's a little spooked, of course, but this isn't the first time something like this has happened. As her footsteps carry her closer to the house, the rattling in the lock speeds up a bit, like the person who's trying to open the door is becoming increasingly frightened as she approaches. She continues to move forward, and now that she's walking past the house, the rattling intensifies. Whoever's opening the door is now in a full-blown panic, and as her walk down the street takes her past the house's front door, it stops all at once. The rest of the walk is silent, She gets home. She tells her mom and two aunts who are visiting about what happened. They listen intently. They are shaken by what she's telling them. They can relate. 
both ants have had the exact same experience in the exact same spot. I'll close off by telling you about this ant and her two sisters. This ant, by the way, is the same one that had that dream I told you about a few weeks ago. When they were in their teens, they moved into a new house. This house was attached to a building that used to be a really seedy bar. This was in the nearby city that I told you about in the last episode. Evidently, this bar had been a really bad place, so when they first moved in, they had a priest come in to bless the house. That very night, my aunt woke up to see a man standing on her bed, looking down at her with an expression of absolute rage and hatred. He stood that way for a few seconds, then leapt off the bed and out the window. This was not on the first floor of the house. The next day, she told her sisters about it. And, as I said with the other story, they realized that they had all three seen the same exact thing. They had all seen the same man, but each of them had seen him on their own bed. My name is Albi Robles, and I want you to scare me. Owen Edgerton is the writer-director of Mercy Black, Follow, and Bloodfest. He's also a novelist, comedian, and can be seen every week on Master Pancake Theater. His movie, Mercy Black, is currently available on Netflix. Uh, hi, I'm Owen Edgerton. Uh, I am a, uh, a filmmaker, screenwriter, uh, a novelist, and a comedian. And a damn fine dancer. Where did I start falling in love with horror? I've always enjoyed the thrill of being frightened. Um, so I think I just I loved it. I remember, you know, staying up late and, and watching um, black and white movies, you know, just on TV, uh, watching uh, Night of the Living Dead and, and The Fly and, uh, and being just terrified. And although I was like, it was funny because old, silly, black and white, gosh, nothing, nothing too scary here. I can see the fakeness. I can see the seams in the monster's outfit, but still would thrill me and terrify me. And then I would go to the video store. We had a little video rental store. Uh, and I'm old enough that basically I remember when those stores were just beginning. And I would, uh, my mom would be, you know, shopping somewhere. And I would just go through the horror section and I would pick up the horror video cassettes and just look at them the artwork and read the back. And I, I, you know, of course I wasn't renting most of these, but I was just, just reading about, well, what could be, you know, what's happening at the chopping mall? What's going on there? <laughs> uh, I, I love that. It's only been recently when talking to my friend, uh, Russell Sharman, who was uh, my co-writer along with Chris Moss when I was doing comedy screenplays. And I, I've been forcing him to watch horror movies to try and show him how good they are. And what I discovered at some point is he would be scared and didn't enjoy it. He didn't enjoy being scared. So the very emotion that I was going to a horror movie for, it wasn't that he wasn't experiencing that. He was and didn't like it. When Russell and I talk on the horror uh, and, and Russell doesn't get it, you know, some horror aspect, sometimes I feel it's like, it's like trying to talk to someone about food who, who just doesn't have a stomach. They, they just don't eat. And so they've never tasted food. And they're, so they're just like, you know, some robot or something like that from another planet. And they're like, what do you mean? You put things in your mouth? Like, ugh, gross. Why would you do that? 
Wait, wait, wait. Then you swallow it? Ugh. I don't understand why you're choosing to watch these films. So often horror movies, and, and there's, I think, more freedom for this to be true in lower budget horror movies, they end up being these accidental fever dreams. Like, there, there's a logic, possibly, in the same way that our dreams have a logic <laughs> that, that is, it, it, it makes sense somewhere, but, but, but not fully. And, uh, and, and all these weird images come together, or images or, or, or gags, you know, like Phantasm is a great example. Like Phantasm, like, I, I have a hard time really describing what the plot of the Phantasm franchise is, but there are these moments and these images and strangeness and weirdness and uncanniness that uh, stick with me. Um, and that's, that, that's kind of a blast of the genre. In some ways, the paranormal doesn't scare me as much. I, I find I, I can enjoy movies with ghosts and movies with the supernatural because I just, they're fun. They, they, they are the equivalent for me in the horror world of superhero movies. Like I enjoy a superhero movie and I'm cheering for Iron Man and everything, but it's not really striking me as a real story in that way it's not it's not trying to depict reality and the same thing if i'm watching the conjuring i will love it and i'll cheer and, and scream and yell but i don't think i necessarily think of ghosts in that way uh where uh, you know if i'm watching a movie about um a murderous family or something like that then the horror strikes me in a different way you know i i started out as a novelist uh, and, uh, while I was writing novels, actually while I was, I was living in a van writing novels, I, uh, I started doing comedy, uh, in fact, started doing comedy with John Erler and another guy, Jerem Pollitt, and we started doing, uh, the Sinus Show at the Alamo Draft House. And it was during that time when I finished my first novel and it was optioned by a small film company. Uh, and when that happened, I was like, well, I should be looking into this. Uh, what screenplays look like. And that kind of began the slow sort of like slip into film. But then when I was actually working in Hollywood, at first it was with Russell Sharman um, and Chris Moss and we were doing comedies. We were doing, you know, studio rewrites and animated films and, and that kind of work. Um, but I was always like going home and watching horror movies. <laughs> like I was meant to be doing research instead of doing the research of watching the latest comedy I was looking up old 1970s horror movies. Um, and at some point, I, I just sort of realized that's what I, I want to write. And I didn't know if I was cool enough to do it. <laughs> and I'm definitely not. But, but at that point, I took a couple of my short stories uh, from my collection, How Best to Avoid Dying, and I worked them into a screenplay that I intentionally wrote so that it would be so inexpensive to film that someone might take a chance on me directing it. Uh, so I made that. It was called Follow. And then I, I shot a scene of it as a short film. Uh, and um, that was about, it was, oh, oh gosh, that's, it's almost, it's almost uh, eight years ago that I filmed that. And then uh, and that sort of allowed me to make my first feature as a director, first horror movie. That was Follow. So I, but right before that, I, I'd written one other, I hired to write a, hor a horror movie called The Axe Murders of Villisca, uh, and then Follow. And then I, I kind of went on from there. Started working, you know, a film for Blumhouse, film with Rooster Teeth, yeah. The film I made with uh, uh, Blumhouse was uh, Mercy Black. The story behind Mercy Black, uh, when, when I was uh, 
in pre-production for my first feature, which was this low budget thing. And I was at one point really disturbed. And I didn't think it, was, it wasn't going to happen. It had been pushed off. And I thought the whole project was dead. And I went to a like after Thanksgiving party. Uh, gosh, this was years and years back. And my friend Tom Pearson told me about Slenderman. And I had not heard about Slenderman at all. This is kind of before it was huge news everywhere. But but the the case of the two girls uh, attempting to kill their friend um, had recently happened. It just like happened, and he was telling me about that. And I started reading about that, and then it also struck me as having similarities with a case that happened in England when my mom was a little girl, my, my family's from England, uh, where a little girl murdered two toddlers and, and had sort of convinced a friend to help her do it. And the startling thing, so many startling things about that particular case, Mary Bell, but when she grew older and she basically was released from prison and was allowed to assume another name, she had a child of her own. And at some point, a book was coming out about her and the press found her. They found her under assumed name. And as I understand it, it was only then that her daughter realized who her mother was. So sort of combining those two stories uh, and, and some other aspects and uh, uh, stories. I was like, well, what happens when someone believes so much in a fictional aspect? And, and also what happens when you grow up and you have to uh, accept the crimes that you did as a child? You know, how are you haunted by your own childhood uh, monstrous actions? Um, so I wrote a script based on that called The Boy. And, uh, and The Boy eventually became Mercy Black. It's a lot of work, but uh, luckily, luckily, work has has kept me a little bit of a float still. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm excited to uh, to bring more scares to the screen, big big screen, small screen. So if you look around Austin, we have these things called moon towers, and uh, there's only you know uh, I think less than twenty left in the city, but we used to have several of them. And one of the big reasons that Austin became one of the first cities in America to have public lighting on this scale uh, with the moon towers was because, well, many years before, uh, Austin had had a, a killer who was going around and 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 murdering or and attacking people, and was nicknamed by the press the Servant Girl Annihilator. I mean, Austin does have some great, creepy stories. Uh, there, yeah, there's so many different weird and cool ghost stories um, that that I adore, <laughs> and and also its own, you know, grisly past. The the, the uh, servant girl annihilator is just a a creepy story, and 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 just horrific too, because it was a serial killer, you know, in the midst of Austin um, in in the 1800s. And the investigation was filled with racism and injustice uh, and, and all those uh, issues that, that haunt us still today. Um, so I, I think, you know, Austin, I can, I can get creeped out walking around Austin, but I think I probably get creeped out walking around any good old town. Now, the Summer Girl Annihilator was never caught, but this is between 1884 and 1885. I just looked up a little bit about it. Uh, the person and uh, and they were never caught. There were murders. There were investigations. Uh, often the murders involved an axe. All kinds of scary things. Um, some people were charged. Different people were accused. Uh, it, it was a wild, strange time, and it took the city, which was vibrant and moving, and really shook it to the core uh, in a lot of different ways. And what's interesting too, and this is uh, one of the 
the tasty little uh, tidbits about the Servant Girl Annihilator is Servant Girl Annihilator stopped, it seems like, around 1884, 1885. Uh, and then a couple of years later, there's a serial killer in London named Jack. Oh, could it be? Did the Servant Girl Annihilator emigrate to England and start up again? Who knows? But some, some, people, some people think so. <laughs> The book, The Midnight Assassin by uh, Skip Hollinsworth is a brilliant book about this servant girl annihilator or, and, and just the impact that had on Austin in, in the uh, 1880s. Skip is a great writer and, and he is a nonfiction, often nonfiction uh, writer, covered crime and, uh, and other weird stuff in Texas. Uh, he's such a, a cool guy. Gosh, have I had experiences with the paranormal? I, it's always it's always a bit of a question of like I I just don't know. I've definitely been uh, that feeling when you're like, gosh, there's more than what I'm seeing and hearing. There's more than what my senses are telling me, or some uh, some tingle in your scalp lets you know that there's there's something else going on where you are. Uh, I did have one experience when I when I was the writer for the X Murders of Velisca. Uh, the Asimurk of Liska was based uh, on a real crime that took place over 100 years ago uh, where a family was murdered uh, in, in their house uh, and they never caught the murderer. Um, so it, the house is reported to be very, very haunted and the director had spent this one terrifying night in the house. So when we were doing notes on the first draft, they flew me, the director, and the, one of the producers to stay in the house that I had just written about and, and it was scary. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Uh, but, but, but I didn't experience anything. I didn't see ghosts. I didn't hear voices. I, 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 none of that. The only thing that was pretty wild that was happening is that place also has a lot of like ghost hunters who stay there. And right before we had stayed there, uh, uh, some ghost hunters had been there and they had left this one sort of motion detector uh, on the second floor and as we were packing up in the morning just dawn ready to go we hear this and it's going off and we book it we run up the stairs and it just stops as we get up there nothing around to see nothing around Mm. do you want to try to scare me if you've had or have heard about a paranormal experience you'd like to share or if the area you live in has a particularly scary legend or lore, I want to hear it. Send an email to scareme at albirobelesvoice.com. Scare Me is produced by Albi Robles Voice and features original music by Adam Clifton. Additional sound bets are provided by Stephen D. Voiceovers. You can follow us on social media. We are Scare Me Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For voiceover booking information or to inquire about having your own podcast produced, go to www.albiroblesvoice.com.